Hebrews chapter 8. Let's read the whole chapter. Start in verse 1, and uh, we'll read down to verse 13. I have two points today. Now, if you've seen them, those two points have about seven or eight sub-points. And uh, Kyler Smith, who's here with us today, Dr. Kyler Smith said, there's no way you'll get through it. So let's me and you prove him wrong. You ready? Let's go. Hebrews chapter 8. If you found it, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Hebrews chapter 8. Let's start in verse 1 and uh, read down to verse 13. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there, verse 1. <clears throat> now, the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, now he quotes Jeremiah here, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Pray with me. <clears throat> God in heaven, we come to you on the merits of Jesus by the power of your spirit, our triune God, and we ask you, help us. Lord, we need help, healing and hope and strength. We've come here on the Lord's day to be strengthened. Please help us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As you can tell, it has been a very heavy two weeks. Ten people killed in a grocery store in Buffalo, Ten black people killed. It was a race-driven murder of ten people. Go out to Texas, all those children gunned down in a school in Uvalde, Texas. 
then to have to stand up here in front of my church and talk about how terrible some people have been treated by fellow Christians? It's almost more than a soul can stand. We have questions. We have questions about fear. We are filled with rage and sadness. There are people in here today with a sense of despair. We wonder, why is the world so broken and sinful and violent and hurtful? We wonder with the prophet Jeremiah, is there a balm in Gilead? Is there comfort for our souls? Is there healing for our people? Is there, is there hope for a better day? So we gather together on a Sunday. Just like people have for thousands of years, people just like me and you, and we take some comfort in knowing that we are not the first generation to feel like this. For almost 2,000 years, Christians like me and you have been living with tremendous pain and suffering and confusion. And they've done so by the grace of God with a self-emptying trust and the cross of Jesus Christ. It's, it's why this little book, the book of Hebrews, is providential for May of 2022. Because these people right here were suffering. Some of them were suffering to the point that they abandoned the faith. And the preacher in chapter 8, writing to his congregation stops them dead in their tracks in verse 1. And he says, wait. The whole point of what I've been talking about, the whole point is this. And he draws their broken hearts and their hurting lives, he draws them down to focus on the person and the work of Christ. You see, here's what we know, that the more, the more you know of Jesus, the more you can stand. The more you know of Jesus, the more you can take in life. And this morning I'm going to walk through it, and we're going to walk through it pretty quickly, but I just want you to see two things. You've got to have a good theology. Really, this is a Christology, which is a theology of Jesus that's going to be rich and give you ground to stand on. So we need to know who he is, and we need to know what he has done and what he does, who he is. In fact, let's make that the first point. Number one, we need to know who he is. Join me there in verse 1. See what he says there in verse 1? Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such... A high priest. You see that word such? It is an intensifier. He's not just a high priest. He is such a high priest. My wife makes, my wife is traveling. She's in Mississippi. Y'all pray for me. She'll be back Wednesday. It's a lonely, lonely place in my house right now. So I'm dreaming about some of the food that she makes. She makes a pie that is a lemon cream cheese pie. And it is not just a good pie. It is so good. You see that word so? It is intensifying good. So good. See that word such in verse 1? 
It is intensifying priest. Such a high priest. What kind of high priest? He is the holy one. You'll see him there. Back up just a bit in verse 26 of chapter 7. And notice all of those words. I won't go through them, but you see them yourself. Right there in verse 26. He is such a high priest, holy and innocent and unstained and, and different from sinners like us. He is reigning, exalted above the heavens. Who is this Jesus? He is the Holy One. It's good for us to know that. I'm reading a book right now about uh, Thomas Jefferson. It's a really good biography. It's a spiritual biography of Thomas Jefferson. And uh, sometimes we just say he had the Jefferson Bible where he tore out all the miracles, and he did do that. But he read the Bible a lot and had a really high regard of Jesus, and he thought the ethic of Jesus was the way people should live. What he didn't think was that Jesus was the Holy One, that he was divine. Not only that, you read this Bible, you find out he is the ruling one. Join me there in verse 1. Look at all those descriptors in verse 1. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. Look at all those words. One who is seated. Stop there. Priests don't sit down. They have work to do in the temple. Not this priest. He is such a high priest. He now has finished his work completely at the cross of Jesus. The full work of redemption is done. Seated. Notice he is seated at the right hand in the honored position. Here is the ruling Savior seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Here is the sovereign Savior. This is what we believe about Jesus. It is good for you right now in the middle of what you're facing, what we're facing as a nation, what you're facing as an individual, to cling to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. You trust that God is working all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purposes. One of the great things that helps my soul each day is to trust that God is in control. I read an article the other day. <clears throat> read an article the other day about uh, men in midlife crisis. Now, I've been in a midlife crisis since I was 25 years old. I have not gotten out of it yet. I'm in one right now. I'm reading this article written by a preacher and uh, written by a pastor, a Christian, and, and what he did was he said that God uses the aging process and going into that when you realize you're not going to achieve all of your dreams you're not going to get all of that. And all that hope you had when you were so young is diminished. But God uses that to put your attention and your trust. And he breaks, he breaks us down, removing pride so that we might trust in him. You see him there as the ruling one, seated at the right hand of majesty. And that majesty is in heaven. That reminds us that this earth is not our home. It gives us hope for today and hope for tomorrow. That's why we can go to funerals and weep, but we don't weep as those who have no hope. See him there not only as the ruling one, but as the serving one. What a great word in verse 2. Join me there in verse 2. He's a minister. Do you see that word? A minister in the holy places. In the true tent, a minister. I would circle that word. It's unusual to see it. Here in the New Testament, it is a word that describes a, someone that serves in a religious capacity. Serving, meeting our needs, healing our wounds, calming our fears, 
giving you backbone, giving you a conscience. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28? Jesus said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the serving one, but he is also the, come down the page a little bit, verse 3, the true offering. Do you see that in verse 3? Notice the true, this priest, look what the text says. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, he's talking about Jesus right there, this priest also to have something to offer. And what did Jesus say the offering was? John chapter 6, verse 55. This is what we, every time we have the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, we don't view that as having saving power. The Roman Catholic Church sees the wafer as the body of Jesus and the wine as the actual blood of Jesus. We, we reject that. We see this as pointing us to what Jesus has done. He gave his life as a ransom is what he said. That's how I serve. Takes us right there to the cross and centers our lives on the cross of Jesus. He holds us and he saves us. You, you keep reading this, you get down to verse 4 and 5, and here's the theology of Jesus. Who he is, he is the real thing. The real thing. Look what the text says in verse 4 and 5. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Jesus was not a priest according to the law. They serve a copy, slow down, and a shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and a shadow. Now, he's talking to his people that were threatening to go back to Judaism, and he was saying, if you go back there, you're going back to something that is not actually the real thing. For instance, if you got done here today and we walked out after church and you went over to the education building and went up to the third floor, went into my office and came into uh, where I do all my studying, and you would notice in one of the bookshelves, there is a little model of a 1965 Pontiac GTO. It is a functioning model. You can raise the hood. You can see under the hood that little tiny engine. It's a replica of the 389 cubic inch motor. It has a three two-barrel carburetors across the top. You can even open the doors. And look in, and there uh, is the four-speed in the floor. It has the cue ball shifter. It really does. It's a copy but what I can't do with that little copy is drive it because it is not the real thing. And what the preacher's saying to his people, that's a, that's a copy, that's nothing more than a model, all of the Old Testament, Testament imagery pointing us to the real thing that is Jesus. Jesus is the real thing. Who is he? Verse 6 tells us that he is the mediator. Look at, that. Look at that word in verse 6. When you read verse 6, you'll see the word better twice. It would be worth going back and just talking about that word better, but, but I got a little bet with Kyler, so let's move on uh, through verse 6. Notice what it says. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises better two times 
He is the mediator of a better covenant. What does the word mediator mean? It means the person that is an arbiter between two parties, stands between. Where does Jesus stand between God's wrath and our sin? And as the mediator, he takes both and dispenses grace. He is a better covenant. He gives us a better. What was, what was the matter of the old covenant? It was the law of God, and it certainly was good and is good. But that law of God was made useless by us and our sin. You see, this covenant, this better covenant, is not given in a conditional way to you that if you will do good, God will bless you. That is not how Christianity, that is not grace at all. Please eradicate from your vocabulary the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. That is not Christianity. That is not grace. That's a burden, you see. The mediator, what does he do? He meets us at the cross and he performs the great exchange. Do you know the great exchange? The great exchange is Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And, and honestly, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> in times of terrible trouble and pain and confusion, one of the greatest things you can do for your soul is to trust who, who he is. To come swim in the gospel water to be clean and free. I would say it like this. This is how we know the gospel. God is a holy creator who created all of us in his image. That image of God in us has been disfigured by our own sin. That sin is such a defilement of God's law that it has separated us from God and broken fellowship. There's no fellowship if you're not in Christ. God is not only just, he's also loving. He gives us Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly then died on the cross in the place of sinners. God raised him from the dead. And the gospel, here's the gospel offer, if you would believe. But you see, in order for the gospel to be good, you actually must receive it. That you turn from your sin and by faith believe that Christ has done that for you. You see, the more you know of Jesus, the more you know about who he is, the more you are able to stand more you can take in this life. We need to know who he is. Let me give you a second thing to consider. Number two, we need to know what he has done. What does he do and what ha has he done for us? What has what God done for us in Jesus? Well, in order to explain that, here's what this preacher does. He reaches back into what he had as a Bible in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. He brings that forward and right here in Hebrews chapter 8, you have the longest quotation of any Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. Verse 8, he, he leads it like this. Join me there in verse 8. He finds fault with them when he says. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that, that the preacher here equates Jeremiah, the scripture, with God speaking? What does God say? What does God say he will do in Christ? There are a couple of ways I want to get at this, if I can. I'd like to fly over it very quickly and then come back and see what that means for us. 
First, let's run through it with the I will statements. Notice that God takes the initiative. See the I will statements. Join me there in verse 8. Verse 8, you'll see, God says, I will establish a new covenant. Drop down to verse 10. God says, I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds. Verse 10, God says, I will be their God. They will be my people. Verse 12, God says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Verse 12, God says, I will remember their sin no more. You understand that this new covenant in Jesus is God moving on his people. What then does God do in the life of a Christian? What does he do? Let's, let's back up to verse 8 and start again. What does he do? Here's the first one. God conciliates. He reconciles, conciliates. You see it in verse 8? Notice what the text says in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Take a little history into God's people, Israel. There's a king that emerged named Saul. He was king over Israel. He was a bad king. God took him away, and David became as the picture king, the one that would point to the Messiah. David over God's people, Israel, had a son named Solomon. He reigned over one unified kingdom. Solomon was not a good leader. After his death, the kingdom split into Israel and Judah, and they were completely divided. And the new covenant promise is God brings people that at one point were divided. He brings them together. Now, this is why, this is why we can joyfully have a diverse church because it is the gospel of Jesus that holds us together. This is why a marriage can last joyfully between two sinners because it is the gospel. This is why broken friendships can be mended. This is why disputes can be settled because of gospel power. In the life of Christians, he conciliates. What else does he do? You'll see it there in verse 9. He not only conciliates, he compensates. Compensates. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 9, God says, Not like the covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. He's talking about when he brought them out of Egypt. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Stop there. The Old Testament covenant is God will bless, but you must be faithful. The new covenant in Christ is his righteousness because our righteousness is filthy rags. So he gives us his. Let me say it another way. You would lose your Christianity every single day if it were up to you. If it were up to you to keep it, it would be gone every single day. Today is Sunday. I love Sunday. I like to come to church. I got in my car this morning about 6.25 or 6.30 and headed to church. Nobody on the road until I got out of my neighborhood and I pulled behind this car. I don't know if it was a, like a Nissan Cube or something, just barely a car. 
and it went 30 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour, the whole way to this church. Now look, if I could have lost my Christianity, I would have lost it this morning <laughs> on a Sunday. You would lose your Christianity every single day. And this new covenant tells us that God compensates. It's not based on what you do. The whole covenant of being a Christian is based on everything that Jesus has done. He does something else here. Let me show you something else. In verse 10, let's talk about conversion. What does conversion look like? You'll see it in verse 10. He changes us, you see, on the inside. This is not behavior management. This is something that happens to you. God acts on you. See what the text says? Verse 10, the very first part. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I, God, doing, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. Here is the nature of true conversion. Here's the nature of saving faith. Think about what God did on Mount Sinai. Remember that? When the two tablets God gave Moses and you go and read it in Exodus and God with the finger of God wrote in stone the Ten Commandments. That's the external. What this new covenant is, God's not writing on stone like he did with the Ten Commandments. It's in you. I will put it in you. Not on stone, but in our hearts and in our minds. You see, he changes us on the nature of true conversion is something that happens that God does in you. Not only that, he changes, he changes our relationship with him. Do you see that in verse 10? It's a beautiful thing, verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds, write on them their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. What a beautiful phrase. How, look, how you understand the fatherhood of God, that you are a daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ, how you understand what it actually means to belong to him. You see, what does God do? Verse 11 says that God makes it personal. See what it says in verse 11? You won't have to tell them over and over again because they will know me. They will know me. Do you know that you can know the mind of God through what the Bible has said? Do you know that you can take your, you can take your problems and hurts and pains to God? You can ask him to act. Do you know that you can live with trust in, in, in God and his sovereignty? And you can walk with confidence. You can look back at your life. And all that you've been through, and that's providence. Verse 11 tells us that he, what does he do? He is indiscriminate, you see, from the very least, look at the end of verse 11, the very least to the greatest. They shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. We used to say it like this, that the ground at the cross is level. One of the, one of, one of the beautiful truths of grace is that it takes an equal amount of grace to save us all. What does he do? Verse 12 tells us. What is, what is Christianity? Join me there in verse 12. Such a beautiful verse. He forgives, you see. God says in this new covenant, I will be merciful. 
I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Take those words, merciful iniquity. Iniquity, the, the understanding that something is wrong and doing it anyway. Mercy is not getting the punishment we deserve. The wages of sin is death. And yet, Jesus takes that death for everyone who will believe. He forgives. What a glorious truth in verse 12. You should circle it. He not only forgives, he forgets. Verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. You see, you remember your sin. God doesn't. You, you keep, maybe you got something really bad back there. You keep bringing it up. You keep bringing that up to the Lord and he checks the records. There used to be a record. But you see, Jesus broke into the vault of your sin and took all the secret records of your sin and nailed them to the cross. And this is what he does. That he not only forgives, but forgets. And in, and in verse 13, is this, verse 13, verse 13 is he makes us new. See the words? Obsolete obsolete, growing old, vanish. The new covenant. You see, the more you know who he is, what he's done, the more you know of Jesus, the more you are able to take what you've got to take out there. I want you to know who he is, the holy, ruling mediator. I want you to know what he does. He strengthens, reconciles, he's merciful, he forgives and forgets. Come and meet this Jesus who is such a great high priest. Will you join me as we pray together? Thank the Lord for that. Join me as we pray, and as we pray, we're going to sing one more song. And uh, before we go into that time of closing out our service with worship, this morning, if you'd like to come forward and have someone pray with you, this last song is the time to do that. If you'd like to talk to a pastor about what it means to give your life to Jesus or to understand this new covenant in a deeper way, when we sing this morning, we'll invite you to come forward. We pray that the, the grace you've heard would be real to you in Jesus. Father, thank you for your word that is strong and good. Thank you for Sunday when we can gather with your people. And I pray that by your grace you administer to the hearts of those in need. Call people to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?